In preparing to preach this morning, I had to wrestle with a couple of questions that, for me, were very perplexing, actually. What on earth do you preach about the day after Christmas? That's the first one. We've had a lot of build-up this year to the big day. We've had uh, five Advent services, as usual. We followed the Christmas story from before time began all the way to the, the main show, the event, you know, the baby being born in the manger. At the, right at the end, right there at, at the last minute, we sang Silent Night by Candlelight. And as a family, we've gone through the Wegener's uh, Advent readings again this year. So we've daily added, uh, or almost daily, added uh, some, uh, an ornament to the tree. Somewhere in there we had a Christmas sing-along, and there's just a lot of build-up to Christmas. There's a lot, of an- a lot of ramping up, a lot of anticipation. And then suddenly the, the day comes, and you open the presents, you eat the food, and poof, it's just gone. Or at least that's been my experience in the past. And so as I wondered what I was supposed to preach the day after Christmas when we've had lots of Christmas already, and then suddenly I find Christmas, the day after Christmas to be one of the strangest days of the year. It tends to be very empty and just strange. Nobody goes to work generally, and, but we don't have anything to do. Just a weird day. What do you preach the day after Christmas? The second question I've had that wrestle with is what do you preach when you actually get to pick your own text? I've been in the pastor's college, the Clear Note Pastor's College, for the last several years, and we've been tag team preaching through 2 Corinthians, and I've just preached whatever fell in my lap. Choosing my own text has proved a wonderfully liberating yet overwhelming experience. If you can go anywhere in the Bible to preach from, where do you go? Well, you'll be happy to know that I believe with the Lord's help, I've answered both of those questions, and the verdict is we are going to have another Christmas sermon today, and not, or at least a sermon on a passage of Scripture which is forever going to be associated with Christmas. It's quintessential Christmas, Isaiah 9. Would you turn there, please? Isaiah chapter 9. Maybe you woke up this morning itching to put Christmas behind you. I'd ask for your patience with that. I believe there's something in this passage that the Lord wants us to hear today. Let's read it together. Isaiah 9, starting with verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very familiar passage for us, and as with all familiar passages, especially the Christmas ones, They just blow right by us. We've heard them a thousand times. We hardly ever stop to consider what the Holy Spirit is saying. And this passage is absolutely full of goodies. 
absolutely packed full of the brim with amazing doctrines that if we stopped for a moment on each one, they would open up for us in technicolor. We have only time to pause on one phrase this morning. It's so full. We, have, we can only chew on this one phrase. It's a gigantic phrase. A phrase that is instructive for how you and I are to live today as Christians. A phrase that rightly understood and believed will be a constant source of comfort and joy and peace and rest and contentment for you. What is the phrase? It's there in verse 6. Isaiah starts, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and there it is. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Think about that. That is a profound statement. But if it's going to help us this morning, if it's going to change us, if it's going to make our life better, easier then we're going to have to do a little work to understand it. It's because we've become desensitized to that phrase by repetition. We hear it every Christmas, over and over again. Let's start by asking an obvious question. Who is he? It says that the government will rest on his shoulders. So who is he? His who? The his refers, of course, back earlier in the verse. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. Who is the child Isaiah is prophesying about? This is an easy A. It's Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. So had it come true when Isaiah was writing this? No. Not for a long time after. But Isaiah is telling God's people that they are to expect a child to be born, a son to be given. And then he goes on to tell them what this child, what they should expect this child to be like, what they should expect of him. What does he tell us to expect of Jesus? The very first thing he tells us is this wonderful phrase, the government will rest on his shoulders. The government. What does that word mean? This is almost how all the Bible translations translate the word. It's a Hebrew word that appears only twice in all of the Bible, and they're both right here. It's an odd word that we translate government. Government would be a good translation. It is a good translation. Except that it brings with it a whole lot of baggage for us today. It brings with it the baggage of all our modern political theory. When we hear the word government, inevitably we think of our own federal government. That's almost inescapable. In any context, we hear the word government. It's such a huge part of our lives. It's on every paper. It's just it, it's like incredibly huge government that we have. It's a part of our own history as a people. Our government is like what we are. And it's become more and more so, not in a good way. Whenever we hear this word government, that we think of the federal government. It's hard to get beyond that. 
So what, what else could we call it? What other word could we use here? We could translate it, the, the rulership will be on his shoulders. Not really a word. The, the princedom, that's a really old word that nobody uses. The rule, the dominion, the authority. These are getting close. The charge. The meaning of this word has far more to do with monarchy than, than it does with modern democracy. That's the point. When Isaiah is prophesying here, what he's prophesying here is that when Jesus comes, sovereign authority over all things will rest on Christ's shoulders. Now again, Western democracies are set up in such a way as to keep the government from resting on any one man's shoulders, right? That's pretty much the definition of what a democracy is. You follow? We have government for the people, by the people. And there's good sense in this, of course. Man is, after all, fallen. And so to spread the authority around and to keep a system of careful checks and balances in place is a good rational idea. It's a good protection. It's a good try. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, we say. This isn't actually accurate. What's more accurate is what God says in both Psalm 14 and 53. He says, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So our system of government gets something right. It gets that we are depraved. But it puts hope in the, in the spreading it around, in the checks and balances. But listen, there is no defense against my wicked heart and yours. Democracy is the best thing we've come up with as a political system, as a governmental system. But don't put your hope in it, please. It is going to fail us. There is no perfect system of checks and balances, except one, the one we're studying right here in Isaiah 9. There's only one kingdom that will abide forever. That is the kingdom and the lordship, the rulership of Jesus Christ, who rules in absolute sovereign authority. Isaiah refers to Christ's dominion over all things as the government. My point is this. Be careful not to read into that word what you think about government. Read into it, rather, Jesus Christ in authority over all things. All things. Himself alone and nobody else. It will be on his shoulders. That's what Isaiah is telling us. What about that on his shoulders business? Why does he say that? Why does he put it that way? Well, did you guys see Jim at Josh Congrove's wedding? He looked nice, didn't he? Jim's a lieutenant in the National Guard. Is that right? How do you know this from looking at Jim's uniform? Shoulders. Why do 
Why do the military men, why have kings throughout history, why have princes worn their symbols of authority on their shoulders? Why? Because authority is heavy. It's heavy emotionally, it's heavy spiritually, it's heavy physically. And men are fashioned in such a way, physiologically, to bear most of the weight, that the, the, weight, the greatest amount of weight they can bear on their shoulders. If you're going to carry two 50-pound, 80-pound bags of quickcrete, is that what they call it, George? How are you going to do it? Are you going to carry it under your arms? If you have to go 100 yards, are you going to do it like that? No, what you want to do is get it up on your shoulders, right? Get it up on your shoulders, and then it's a piece of cake, really. It's because shoulders can bear a lot more weight than any other part of your body. So kings and soldiers wear symbols of their rank, of their authority, on their shoulders, just as kings and soldiers have always done. And so Christ is said to have the government rest on his shoulders, symbolically pointing to his kingly authority over all things. It will rest there like a symbol, like an ensign. This is what the, the reference, the obscure reference uh, to the key of David might mean. It, it, it's thought to perhaps me be a, a, a symbol that King David wore on his shoulder. That Christ is said to symbolically inherit the key of David. Have you heard that? We sing it in some hymns Christmas time. But there's a greater reason, another reason, that we're told that the authority, the, the government, will rest on his shoulders. It's because it's an indication of his unique ability to carry it. Remember how I said that man has fallen, and so the whole point of a democracy is to try and keep any one man from having absolute authority? Well, there's, there, there once was a man who wasn't fallen, Right? Who could, without any fear of becoming a tyrant, bear something akin to total authority over the created world? Something came that he didn't recognize. He gave it a name. That's what it was called. There was a man that bore that authority at one time, who God put in charge of the world, who said, have dominion, subdue the world. It's your job. Adam, right? Adam had authority over creation. God gave it to him. What happened? There's a reason that Isaiah refers to Christ's government in the future tense here, isn't there? saying that it shall rest one day on his shoulders. There's a reason he's holding out hope for God's people in this way. It's because God's people need that hope. It's because things aren't hunky-dory and going well in Isaiah's day. It's not like good old Adam, great-great-grandfather Adam, is just sitting around waiting to hand over the kingdom to a better man who, who, when he eventually decides to show up, Jesus. No, Adam is long dead. 
Why is Adam long dead? He sinned. And what happened to his dominion when he sinned? He lost it, didn't he? To whom, then, did it go? Dominions don't just go into, like, no man's land, a holding pattern, until another man is ready to pick it up. It never happens that way. As I think Tim or somebody in the pastor's college, somebody recently said, authority doesn't disappear. It's like energy. Once it's created, it always exists. It, It rests somewhere always. Men can slough it off. They can try to get rid of it. But it's going to, somebody else is going to pick it up. Usually our wives. What happened to Adam's authority? Who did it go to? Have you ever wondered? It went to Satan. To the prince of the power of the air. Satan tricked him out of it. Much like Esau was tricked out of his birthright, or sold his birthright, rather, for a piece of bread. Adam did the same. Sold his birthright, his dominion, his rule, for a piece of fruit. And Satan gained a kingdom. This kingdom. The world. And he plunged it into darkness. And men into sin and misery and hopelessness, and despair, and death, just like he wanted. He's the destroyer. And so there is man, having lost his authority, wandering about the earth without a home. The whole earth is against him. What does he need? He needs hope, right? He needs this hope that Isaiah is holding out to him. He needs this hope that there is going to be one who will come, who will take back the government from Satan, who will bear the government again on his shoulders. A second Adam, a new man. That's what this prophecy is about. Man needs a champion, a hero. We needed a Messiah. And did we get what we needed? Has this prophecy of Isaiah now been fulfilled? Let me ask it this way. Whereas Isaiah prophesies that the government shall rest, as in future tense, on Christ's shoulders, how does the New Testament speak of this government now that Christ has come? How does the New Testament speak of Christ's dominion now? today? Answer carefully. You probably, if you're like me, want to say that it speaks about it in the present tense. But turn to Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. I want you to see something. It's true that it does speak about the reign of Christ in the present tense. The New Testament does. It's true that it does speak about it in the future tense. It does. We do live in a kind of already and not yet state of things, if you understand what I mean. 
but frequently, more often than not, it speaks about it in this way. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Partially quoting the Old Testament and partially writing the New, the writer says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. What tense is that in? It's in the past. This is the way that the New Testament normally speaks about Christ's authority, about Christ's victory, about Christ's dominion in the past, in a sort of it's-been-done-already way. As in, like, how much more done already and complete could this statement get? You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Has the promise been fulfilled? When was it fulfilled? When Christ was born, when Christ obeyed, when Christ resisted Satan, when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, when Christ died, when Christ especially rose again. Let's look at, let me just read a couple more places to you so that you see I'm not making this up. Ephesians 4.8. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, when he ascended on high, he led he led forth he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Past tense. First Peter three twenty one to twenty two. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Don't be confused. This is one of the most scary verses in the Bible. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Ephesians 1, 18-23, we know this one very well, Paul's prayer for us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought, he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All past tense when it comes to his authority. All things have been subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. We are not still waiting for them to be done, according to Scripture. They have been done. 
He is in the driver's seat. Jesus Christ is in control. God promised us back in Isaiah that a Messiah would come and that the government would rest on his shoulders, which is to say, not any longer on Satan's. The the world, so that the world would not be held under Satan's sway. And that that Messiah has come, Jesus Christ, and he has triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. All things have been subjected to him. There is nothing that has not been subjected to him. All things have been put under his feet. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's been done. It's been decided. Christ has come. He has won himself a victory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And now he has sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting for a few inconsequential little skirmishes to get done with and out of the way. Waiting for God to complete his work of, of he's, he, remember he says to his son, sit here until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. But realize that the real enemy has been defeated by Jesus himself. He made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him on the cross. The government rests squarely on his shoulders. This is not something we're still waiting to happen. There is nothing that has not been subjected to him. Brothers and sisters, what does this mean? What does this do for us? How does this knowledge that Jesus Christ is right now in authority over all things... How does it help us? What does it do? How does it help you to know that the government is on his shoulders and not yours? Not on anyone else's. Not on any any imperfect, fallible, sinful man. It's on a perfect, righteous, capable, strong man. The man. What does it mean for those of you who are struggling to find work? There are some of you struggling to find work out of a job. What is the knowledge of Jesus Christ in authority over all things, every molecule? You realize, when we hear words like all, it just makes the eyes spin around in our heads, right? (laughs) Do you realize that right now somewhere in Africa there's a gazelle being hunted by a lion? who hasn't eaten for three days. And whether or not the gazelle will live, right now, it's happening. Jesus Christ is in authority over it. For instance, you know, (laughs) one of a trillion infinite things that are happening right now under his command. How does it help you who are struggling to find work? Does it help you to hear Jesus rebuking you? Saying that by worrying you cannot add one hour to your life. 
that you should consider how well God beautifully clothes the lilies that, that are alive today and then wither and die tomorrow? How much more will he care for you? Christ, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it's at his command. Money, the stock exchange, every cent of every currency in the world is under his control. It is nothing for him to provide for you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he says, and these things will be added to you. How does it help you who are fearing for your souls, who doubt that God could save you, who struggle in that way, I've struggled in that way many times. How does this knowledge help you? Well, what did we read in the scripture lesson today, Romans 11? Does it help you to know that salvation is not on the basis of works? That it's not on your shoulders to get saved? Is that helpful? Those of you who are constantly trying to be perfect for God so that he will love you? Is that helpful to you? To understand that salvation is not by work so that no man may boast. It's on the government of your salvation is on his shoulders. Does it help you to know those of you who fear death that Christ has tasted death for you? He drank it to the full. He suffered far more than you or I ever will. And by so doing, he has taken away the sting of it, sin. Just like the grave could not hold Jesus, it will not hold you when he commands you to come forth. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ shall have dominion over your death. Those of you who are fighting daily against serious, gross, embarrassing, disgusting sins, and who isn't? Well, there are some who aren't. But I'm speaking to those of you who are, like me. Does it help you to know that Christ knows what it's like to feel those temptations? And to resist them, and to win For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He has resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's how much he knows the pain of it. He knows it better than you do. This is, this is he who commands you to keep resisting and promises that he will be with you. Always. Does it help you 
to those of you who are man-pleasers, who go around carrying on your shoulders the fear of others not loving you, the fear of others rejecting you, despising you, turning their back on you because of anything? Does it help you to know that you have a friend in Jesus who will never leave you or forsake you, who has bought you with a price and he doesn't waste his money? He would never turn his back on you. Does it comfort you to know that those of you who are disturbed and vexed by the wickedness of the culture around us, that Christ will have his comeuppance? Does it comfort you to know that? That one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does it comfort you to know that, Brian, that nothing escapes his perfect justice? Every deed will be accounted for, good and bad. He's keeping a list and checking it infinitely. (laughs) Not one offense against himself or his children will go unpunished. Does that also scare you? I hope so. I hope that it scares you to flee to his cross, which is the only refuge for those who hope to escape that kind of justice. There it has already been poured out. The punishment has been delivered. There you can be safe. Does it help? What does it change? Like practically, What is it going to change? As I think about myself, as I think about my years in this church, as I think about who we are and what God has done in us, I think what this knowledge will change about us if we believe it is one thing mainly. We will pray. It'll change our prayer life. When you realize the authority that belongs to Jesus Christ, when you believe that it's on his shoulders and his alone, what happens to you, what happens to those who love you, what happens with your money, what happens to this church, with your children, with your cars, with your jobs, what happens with absolutely everything when you realize that it all rests on his shoulders and not yours, you will pray. So I'm afraid to say that we must not believe it much because we don't pray much. We, we do pray in our services. I'm mostly talking about with one another. I'm mostly talking about what is our first instinct when we come up against a fear or an anxiety or a problem in this church as leaders that who do we turn to? Do we turn to us or do we turn to Christ who is an authority over it? 
I have seen that we turn to us. And only as a last resort, turn to Christ. God has ordained only one pair of shoulders upon which the government of our lives and this church will rest. It will not be upon ours. We are not the ones who God has chosen to glorify in that way. There is only one man, Jesus Christ. And there is nothing too small, nothing that bothers him. It only adds glory to him. There is nothing we can't turn to him for. I'm trying to think of a scripture, can't think of it. What is the one about casting your cares upon him? Say it, please. All kinds of prayers and requests. I don't know that. That's wonderful. That's exactly what I'm talking about. All kinds. They all glorify him. Do you want to glorify Jesus Christ? Then pray. That's the best way I know. Turn to him. You can't pray to him in the way I'm talking about, in the sort of immediately when you encounter a problem, turning to Christ in prayer without having faith. You won't do it otherwise. And it is faith that glorifies Christ. When you pray to him in faith, he gets glory. That is the purpose of our lives. I think New Year's resolutions are dumb, largely. But could we make one together and keep it? It's the only one I think that really matters today. And that is that we become people who pray. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. It's weak. It's you don't mind me saying so, impotent. But it glorifies Christ. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength for anything. That's the truth. And he has it all. All authority has been given to him. Let's, let's become a church that prays. Prays with one another. Humbles ourselves. It's really... I find the hardest for me is to humble myself with you, before you. It's awkward and weird, sinfully, for me to like say, you know, let's pray. I hardly ever do it. Help me by teaching me to do it. Let's become a church that prays and glorifies Christ. Let's pray now.